Welcome to Twin Peaks Radio, the show where we remember, in the words of Major Garland Briggs, a real mystery can't be solved. Not completely. It's always just out of reach, like a light around the corner. You might catch a glimpse of what it reveals, feel its warmth, but you can't know the heart of it. Not really. That's what gives it value. It can't be cracked. It's bigger than you and me, bigger than everything we know. I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black, and today we continue into the pilot. We're not even ten minutes in just yet. I believe we left off when Sarah had just hung up her phone with Betty Briggs. She thinks maybe Laura is with Bobby, or maybe Laura went with Leland to his early meeting. Before I get into this episode, I must uh, say up front, if you speak French, I I should apologize, because there's going to be some French in this episode, and I may mispronounce it. Oh well. Sarah Palmer, in her kitchen, with the phone. She calls the school, the field house, and football coach Max Hartman answers. With a name like Max Hartman, and a role so close to Bobby and Mike, it feels like a character that had room to grow, except we never see him again. This is his only scene. All he says is, no, Bobby hasn't shown up for practice yet today. Come to think of it, as a matter of fact, he's been late every day this week, Mrs. Palmer, and last week, and maybe even the week before. In the script, he has a little more. He continues, although he might be here before you know it. Well, I could have him call you, Mrs. Palmer. Is it urgent? Okay, sure, fine. But in the show, she's already hung up. Because this is all we see of Max Hartman, I haven't talked about the actors much yet because I figured I'd find moments where they really shine and then talk about them. But this is his only scene. He was on a pilot for a show that has lasted so long, I figured I'd mention Ben DiGregorio. He's a Brooklyn native, according to his bio on IMDb, born 19th June 1948. He went to 14 Holy Martyrs grade school. Ben continues the tradition of four generations of Sicilian bakers. A Vietnam vet, and a graduate of University of Massachusetts, Boston, English literature. He has studied classic no theater in Japan and holds a second-degree black belt in Aikido. His film TV character roles range from polka-dancing German restaurateurs to quirky Russian emigres, waterfront tough guys, Pakistani cab drivers, and, of course, Italians. (laughs) And, of course, Italians. His first role was in La Vallée Fantôme in 1987, and his latest role was Moving In in 2010, uncredited role. He's in Don't Look Up? What? He was in something called Don't Look Up that was in 2009, not the Netflix film that is out right now. Brand new. Although this sounds fun. It's a remake of a story by the same people who did The Ring, the original Ring called Joyure. It's about evil spirits released from old celluloid that cause a film crew to slowly go insane while in production on a new project. That sounds awesome. And I'm going to have to put that to my watch list. We reestablish the Great Northern, the waterfall, camera panning left to the hotel, and then we're introduced to Audrey. And we'll note that in the script, this scene is not there. Audrey is only seen in the classroom. In the show, of course. She's got more going on. We see Audrey exit the hotel, get into a car with the chauffeur, and leave. And we cut to Benjamin and Leland. 
beside the fireplace. Benjamin Horn says, are they ready to sign? And Leland points out some important information here. Are you not even going to mention that we have not as yet acquired access to the Packard land? Ben spits into the fire and then says, Sorry, we have solid information. Packard Sawmill is going to go belly up within a year. We are going to be able to get it for a song. One verse, no chorus. Now let's get out there and get those cheese eaters where they live. Before Leland isn't sure what to say, this is where I get sidetracked. On the one hand, I wonder why does he call them cheese eaters. On the other hand, we gotta know what cheese eaters are, don't we? Merriam-Webster defines cheese eaters simply as an informer, a stool pigeon, a rat. The free dictionary gets a little more detailed. One who is regarded as a traitor. Cheese alludes to rats eating cheese, playing on the definition of rat meaning traitor. An informer, a rat fink, etc. So then I go down a rat hole, I guess, in this case. Not a rabbit hole. Because word detective, just in passing, under a discussion of a bunch of mafia terms, I guess, in explaining what I thought was really obvious. Incidentally, many people are mystified by a term used in a bit of dialogue found in nearly every mob movie. In this scene, an older guy, usually the mob boss, is explaining the facts of the underworld life to a younger guy, who usually turns out to be an undercover cheese eater, Rat. At the end of his spiel, the boss slaps the kid on the shoulder and says something that sounds like capiche. The kid gulps and replies, capiche. What they're actually saying, and this is funny, is capish. In parentheses, capiche, also spelled capiche. Hey kid, one more thing. If you ever set foot in this store again, you'll be spending Christmas in Juvenile Hall. Capiche. Well, do you understand? Everything except capiche. Italian-American slang for understand or got it. Capish comes from the Italian word capiche. Is that not how you spell the Italian version? Hey, how you doing? I'm Stevie B, and the Italian-American slang of the day is gabiche, gabiche. And the Italians say it as capice, capice. Based on the verb capire, meaning to understand. Did he just explain that it was exactly what everyone knows it is? Might as well say capiche right now. Urban Dictionary. Cheese eater is a snitch, a rat, someone who is working with the caps. Fine. A derogatory term for one who collects government assistance. So named because the U.S. government between the 1960s and 1990s ran a popular public assistance program for welfare and food stamp recipients whereby recipients were given blocks of processed government cheese. I can't find any other source that anyone called these people cheese eaters. Nor this one. One who doesn't want to work yet expects to get paid. Before I get to the irony of that one, let's continue down this crazy road. Because I get distracted because my Google search brings up Sin Eater as well. Specifically because in the 1978 TV miniseries The Dark Secret of Harvest Home, there's a funeral scene wherein all the mourners in attendance avert their faces as a repudiated fellow designated the Sin Eater dines upon a symbolic meal, which includes a coin pressed into a cheese thereby taking the deceased's transgressions in life upon himself. The Dark Secret of Harvest Home miniseries was based on the novel Harvest Home, a 1973 psychological horror novel by American writer Thomas Tryon, and the plot is fairly fascinating. Ned Constantine, his wife Bethany, and their daughter Kate relocate from New York City to an isolated Connecticut village, Cornwall Coombe, where the villages adhere to the old ways, eschewing modern agricultural methods and having extremely limited contact with the outside world. Just right there, 
I could see people making a case for this connecting to Twin Peaks. It doesn't, because it was cheesy or not Sin Eater. That coin, breast in the cheese scene in the miniseries, is not in the book. Search two different copies of it on script. It's not in there. But, continuing, in this town, this village of Kornmokum, there are, they chose a corn maiden for their harvest festival, harvest lord. It's complicated local lore that essentially ends with them sacrificing someone to keep the village well and make sure the harvest goes well, which in pagan lore would fit Twin Peaks as well. Why does Laura die? She's taking on the sins of her father, as it were. Ned Constantine, his wife Bethany, Beth, and their daughter Kate relocate from New York City to an isolated Connecticut village, Cornwall Coombe, where the villages adhere to the old ways, eschewing modern agricultural methods and having extremely limited contact with the outside world. As one says, we don't mess with other folks and we expect them not to mess with us. The villagers celebrate a number of festivals that revolve around the cultivation of corn. The most important festival is the Harvest Home, which takes place once every seven years. Ned befriends Robert Dodd, a former college professor who is now blind and largely homebound. Like Ned, Robert was once an outsider who moved to Cornwall Coombe at the behest of his wife Maggie, who was born in the village. Ned also meets, among others, Justin Hook, who serves as the current ceremonial Harvest Lord, Justin's wife Sophie, his chosen corn maiden in the approaching corn play, and Worthy Pettinger, a young man whose dream of going to agricultural college is frustrated by his parents who hold to the old ways. The most important person in the village is Mary Fortune, known as Widow, the village herbalist and midwife. She herself is childless and has been a widow since the long-ago death of her husband, Clem. When Kate suffers a severe asthma attack, the widow Fortune performs a tracheotomy and saves her life. She later prescribes home remedies which cure Kate entirely. Beth and Kate grow to adore the widow, but Ned is suspicious of her herbal medicines and finds her unquestioned influence over the town troubling. Meanwhile, Worthy is chosen as the next Harvest Lord, who will replace Justin at the end of his seven years of service. Worthy does not wish to become the Harvest Lord, confusing Ned, who understood the title to be an honor. At church, Worthy shouts out a curse upon the corn before fleeing. The widow announces that Worthy is henceforth Bane and will be shunned by the village if he ever returns. Meanwhile, Worthy's parents and their goods are shunned because of their son's departure. Although they are blameless, protesting, they had raised him right. Ned secretly provides Worthy with money to escape the village, and Worthy promises to write to him. Ned begins to understand that the villagers, led by their women, practice pagan fertility rites to ensure their harvests. He became suspicious of the upcoming harvest home, but the most anyone will tell him is that it is what no man may see nor woman tell. Meanwhile, Worthy's letter from Hartford to Ned, despite using a pseudonym, had been intercepted by Tamar Penrose, the postmistress, who steamed it open. It revealed Worthy's address. A posse was sent to kidnap and return him. He was later killed in the village. Ned is horrified to see Worthy's corpse being burnt in a massive bonfire on kindling night, where it had been callously tossed among the scarecrows. On the day of harvest home, Justin's wife Sophie unexpectedly commits suicide. She is denied burial and consecrated ground on the orders of the widow, whom Ned denounces for this cruelty. Dropping the cat-and-mouse game she had been playing with Ned, she declares him an outcast and has him imprisoned in the village jail to keep him from interfering with Harvest Home. All the women then depart to choose another corn maiden. 
Ned does not eat any food, fearing it is drugged. He manages to escape and returns home to find his car missing and his phone dead. Ned goes to Robert Dodd for help, only to be told that on the night of Harvest Home, all the phones are disabled and all the cars confiscated until morning, while all the men are confined to their homes. Robert reveals that he himself was blinded for attempting to discover the secret of Harvest Home and begs Ned not to go out again. Fearing for his wife and daughter, Ned faithfully ignores the warning and returns to the village. Ned arrives in time to see the heavily veiled new corn maiden, whom he thinks is Tamar Penrose, who had been corn maiden two cycles, 14 years earlier. Justin and the village women depart for Harvest Home. Ned races ahead of them. The corn maiden removes her veil, revealing herself to actually be Beth. When Ned cries out in horror, the women capture him and are on the verge of killing him before they are stopped by the widow, who forces him to watch as Beth and Justin, both drugged, copulate, symbolically uniting the harvest lord and the corn maiden to ensure a bountiful harvest. At the moment of Justin's climax, Tamar cuts his throat with a sickle. The women then collect and sprinkle his blood through the fields. Ned tries to escape, but the women surround him and blind him, as they had done to Robert Dodd years earlier. Months later, Ned learns that Beth is pregnant, and Kate is to be the next corn maiden. Ned's family had been allowed to move to Cornwall Coombe because the village needed new blood, so to speak. Now regarding Sin Eaters, this is from Encyclopedia Britannica, 1911. Sin Eater, a man who, for trifling payment, was believed to take upon himself, by means of food and drink, the sins of a deceased person. The custom was once common in many parts of England and in the highlands of Scotland, and survived until recent years in Wales and the counties of Shropshire and Herefordshire. Usually, each village had its official sin-eater, to whom notice was given as soon as a death occurred. He at once went to the house, and there, a stool being brought, he sat down in front of the door. A groat, that's a coin, a crust of bread, and a bowl of ale were handed him, and after he had eaten and drunk, he rose and pronounced the ease and rest of the dead person for whom he thus pawned his own soul. The earlier form seems to have been more realistic, the sin-eater being taken into the death chamber and a piece of bread and possibly cheese having been placed on the breast of the corpse by a relative, usually a woman. It was afterwards handed to the sin-eater, who aided in the presence of the dead. He was then handed his fee, and at once hustled and thrust out of the house amid execrations and a shower of sticks, cinders, or whatever other missiles were handy. The custom of sin-eating is generally supposed to be derived from the scapegoat in Leviticus 26, verses 21-22. Chip over there really quick. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. A symbolic survival of it was witnessed as recently as 1893 at Market Drayton, Shropshire. After a preliminary service had been held over the coffin in the house, a woman poured out a glass of wine for each bearer and handed it to him across the coffin with a funeral biscuit. In Upper Bavaria, sin-eating still survives. A corpse cake is placed on the breast of the dead and then eaten by the nearest relative. While in the Balkan Peninsula, a small bread image of the deceased is made and eaten by the survivors of the family. The Dutch dead keks, or dead cakes, marked with the initials of the deceased, introduced into America in the 17th century, were long given to the attendants at funerals in Old New York, 
the burial cakes, which are still made in parts of rural England, for example Lincolnshire and Cumberland, are almost certainly a relic of sin eating. But let us drift back into Cheese Eater, which got me. I don't even know if this website mentions Cheese Eater specifically, but I found it hilarious. This is from wordhistories.net, a linguistic investigation into cheese and fromage. The word cheese is from Old English. Shit, I don't know how to pronounce any of these. Cease and Sice of West Germanic origin. It is related to its Dutch and German equivalents, Kass and Kasse, respectively. I apologize for the French. I forgot to apologize for everything else. Those words are ultimately derived from Latin Cassius, cheese, which is also the origin of Spanish queso, Portuguese queijo, regional Italian casio, Romanian cas. Based on this Latin word Cassius, the English casian, scientific term coined in the mid-19th century, designates the main protein present in milk and in uncoagulated form in cheese. Casein is used in processed foods and in adhesives, paints, and other industrial products. The French word for cheese, fromage, has its origin in the fact that cheesemakers compress curds in molds. This French word is from late Latin, formaticus cassius, molded cheese, from Latin forma, a mold or form. This is why the words for brawn are fromage de tête, head cheese, in France, and tête fromagée, molded head, in Quebec also American English, head cheese. The meat from the pig's or calf's head is cooked and pressed in a pot with jelly. The form fromage, from formaticus, is due to metathesis, i.e. to transposition of sounds and letters inside the word. Example is English bird from Old English Brit. The Italian and Catalan words are fromaggio and formace, and in French, a type of cylindrical cheese from the Cantal region is still called forme, from Latin forma, in the sense of cheese mold. An obsolete phrase, l'acier à l'eau, le chat à fromage, literally to let the cat go to the cheese, is a euphemism used of a woman who has let a man have sexual intercourse with her. The idiom, entre la poire et le fromage, literally between the pear and the cheese, is used of people chatting at the end of their meal, their cheerfulness resulting from the good food they had eaten. The phrase, en faire tout un fromage, literally to make a whole cheese of it, means to make a big fuss about it. A variant is en faire tout un plat. Un plat is a dish. English, big cheese, for an important person, translates in French as gros bonnet or gros légume, literally big hat or big vegetable. Légume is a masculine word, except in this case. Un gros légume is a big vegetable, whereas un grosse légume is an important person. In France, as well as in Britain, the traditional girls' game was faire de fromage to make cheeses. Girls turned round rapidly, trying to inflate their dresses as much as possible, and then sank on the ground so that the dress remained inflated. Only the head and shoulders surrounded by a ball-like skirt then appeared, intended to represent a cheese. The English essayist and critic Thomas de Quincey evoked this game in Sketches of Life and Manners from the autobiography of an English opium eater first published in Tate's Edinburgh Magazine of February 1834. Madame de Campan mentions, as an amusing incident in her early life, though terrific at the time and overwhelming to her sense of shame, that not long after her establishment at Versailles, in the service of someone amongst the daughters of Louis XV, having as yet never seen the king, 
she was one day suddenly introduced to this particular notice under the following circumstances. The time was morning. The young lady was not fifteen. Her spirits were in the spirits of a fawn in May. Her tour of duty for the day was not come or was gone. And finding herself alone in a spacious room, what more reasonable thing could she do than amuse herself with whirling around, according to that fashion known to young ladies both in France and England, and which in both countries is called making cheeses, these pirouetting until the petticoat is inflated like a balloon and then sinking into a curtsy. Mademoiselle was very solemnly rising from one of these curtsies in the center of her collapsing petticoats when a slight noise alarmed her. Jealous of intruding eyes, yet not dreading more than a servant at worst, she turned, and, oh heavens, whom should she behold but his most Christian majesty advancing upon her, with a brilliant suite of gentlemen, young and old, equipped for the chase, who had been all silent spectators of her performances. From the king to the last of the train, all bowed to her, and all laughed without restraint as they passed the abashed amateur of cheesemaking. But drifting back to the show, remember that urban dictionary definition, one who doesn't want to work yet expects to get paid. In this case, Ben's doing a little projecting. He's calling the Norwegian cheese eaters, but he's the one who doesn't have the land and cannot start building. Remember, in the words of Major Garland Briggs, mystery is the most essential ingredient of life. Mystery creates wonder, which leads to curiosity, which in turn provides the ground for our desire to understand who and what we truly are. This has been a production of Lemming Drop Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com. Follow the show on Twitter at Peaks Radio, on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Twin Peaks Radio, or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. The owls may not be what they seem, but they still serve an imperative function. They remind us to look into the darkness.